as summer was giving way to autumn in the year 480 BCE, an army numbering in the tens of thousands was marching across the land of Greece, leaving a trail of carnage in its wake. The combined might of the Persian Empire, marshaled by the King of Kings himself, the great Xerxes, had crashed over the city-states of mainland Greece like a relentless tide. One band of defenders had stood against them as they entered this land, holding fast at the narrow mountain pass called Thermopylae. A team of 300 elite Spartan warriors had resisted them, led by their king Leonidas, and supported in the first days of fighting by a host of allies. Persian troops were slaughtered in countless numbers. But in the end, the Spartans too had been swept aside, and the glorious 300 lay dead as the army of Xerxes advanced, vast and unstoppable. The behemoth might of the Persian Empire would soon be within striking distance of Attica itself, the rocky region of Greece that was home to the famous and bustling city of Athens. On the other side of the Isthmus of Corinth, further from the advancing danger, the cities on the Peloponnesian Peninsula began fearing for their own safety and withdrew into their own borders. A fortification wall was hastily built across the Isthmus in hopes of keeping back the might of Persia. And so it happened that Athens was left to care for itself in the face of an overwhelming attack, and the other Greek nations and their lack of unity seemed ready for their land to be devoured piece by piece. For months, the Athenians had been watching the encroaching force, knowing full well that they would be among the first to feel the Persian king's vengeance. After all, it was Athens that had led the charge against the first Persian invasion a decade ago, that sent them fleeing from Greece in defeat. As a defense was mounted, and the Spartans under King Leonidas had rallied to meet the Persians head-on at Thermopylae, Athens had taken the first step of seeking the advice of the gods. They had sent an embassy to the Oracle of Delphi, the great mountain shrine of the prophetic god Apollo on Mount Parnassus, to ask for his divine guidance in protecting their city. Entering the grand marble temple of Apollo, the Athenian ambassadors approached the revered Pythia on her seat within, the sacred priestess of the god and transmitter of his words. The ambassadors put their question to her and awaited the oracle's response. In time, the Pythia rolled her head back and darkly responded to the Athenians with a frightening warning. Leave your land and city and flee afar the prophetess cried. Fire and sword in the train of the eastern chariot shall overrun your people. Abandon your sanctuary now with your souls in sorrow. The envoys were shaken to their bones. They feared for themselves, for their families, and for their city, and were afraid to carry back this virtual sentence of death to their people. They implored the Pythia for a more hopeful reply, to tell them how Athens could possibly be saved. And in reply, they were given a second riddling message from the god. 
this assurance I give you, as firm as adamant. Though all else in the land of Kekrops shall be captive, Zeus grants to Athena that the wooden walls alone shall remain unconquered to defend you and your children. Wait not to withstand the assailing horse and foot, but turn your backs and retreat. O divine Salamis, you too shall destroy the children of women, either at the seed time or at the harvest. Here, thought the Athenian ambassadors, was some hope, though small and wrapped in enigma. What were the wooden walls? It was this question, and the Pythia's mysterious injunctions that the embassy brought back to their city. And when the Athenians heard this news, a vigorous debate arose. Among the myriad voices in Athens' democratic assembly, one faction emerged to argue for a more literal interpretation, that they should invest their energy and funds into constructing a giant wooden wall around the high Acropolis, the sacred center of the city, where they could withdraw and make their stand under the gods' protection. This view was easily understood and appealed to the Athenians' urge to hold the city and fight the Persians to their last breath. But as this view was winning support, another voice rose confidently in the assembly. It was the voice of Themistocles, the most famous political leader of his age, well known to the Athenians. He was a man of the people, widely supported among the populace of Athens, and a constant rival of the aristocracy. Themistocles was a clever strategist, some would say crafty, and others even underhanded. But few would doubt the integrity of his vision for Athens' glorious future, however much they loved or despised the man and his views. Three years ago, Themistocles had gained fame for his tireless push for the expansion of Athens' naval power and the construction of a brand new fleet. It was in that year that Athens' silver mine in the mountain at Laurion, in Attica to the south of Athens itself, had yielded a massive new vein of silver, which flushed the Athenian state with incredible new wealth. And soon a debate had ensued over how to spend it. His rival, Aristides, had suggested a cash payment to each citizen of Athens, dividing the sum equally, democratically. But it was Themistocles' plan that had won the day, to arm the city with some 200 well-built ships, a far-sighted plan that would guarantee Athens' full supremacy over the seas for nearly a hundred years. And here once more, as he rose to speak in the assembly on the eve of invasion, it was Athens' naval power to which he turned. What had the oracle meant when she spoke mysteriously of the wooden walls? To Themistocles and his supporters, the answer was clear. They were the wooden hulls of Athens' new fleet. The salvation of the city lay in its new naval strength, and only with the aid of their fleet would they survive the Persian threat. Persuading the Athenians to trust in their ships was not as difficult as coming to grips with the rest of the Pythia's prophecy. 
boarding the wooden walls that would bear them to safety meant abandoning their city to be ravaged by the advancing Persians. There would be no heroic stand atop the Acropolis. The battlefield would not be in Athens, but abroad, and Apollo's command to escape and retreat from the city was to be taken quite literally. But what, at last, of the final warning from Delphi, that Salamis, the island just off Athens's coast, would destroy the children of women? Surely a great disaster lay in store for the Athenians at Salamis. Here Themistocles supplied a novel reading. If the oracle had meant that the Greeks would be destroyed there, she wouldn't have called the island Divine Salamis. What could this mean except that it was not the Greeks, but their enemies who were to be destroyed under the watch of the gods? He begged his fellow Athenians not to desert their homeland, but to fight boldly for its salvation. And to do this, they would evacuate their beloved city, moving all the people to safety, and put their faith in the wooden walls of their ships. They would stage a counterattack from the sea at the divine island of Salamis, the place chosen by the gods for the salvation of Athens. Themistocles' arguments carried the assembly, and immediately the Athenians set to work to expand and equip their fleet for the war to come. In due course, the time had come for the Athenians to obey the oracle and leave behind their native soil. In only a few days, the menacing Persian host would arrive at Athens, and there wasn't an hour to lose. The elderly, the women and the children, with as much of their property as they could carry, were hastily taken on board and carried to neighboring islands and cities that agreed to take in the refugees. Salamis, Troizen across the gulf, and even Aegina, Athens's long-standing rival. The men of fighting age took to their warships, the triremes, maneuverable ships outfitted with three banks of oars, captained and rowed by the citizens of Athens. With these triremes, they would fight on the sea to save what they had lost on land. But in the end, not everyone had agreed with Themistocles' reading of the oracle, and a few still insisted on remaining behind, where they would take refuge on the Acropolis, behind a great wooden wall they had made. Here they would make a stand and try to turn back the Persians under the sacred temples of their gods. Apart from these few, however, the once bustling city of Athens was utterly deserted, its streets and homes filled only with an empty wind, and lay open for the taking of an invading empire. Not only Athens, but all of Attica was desolate, and in the whole region the great king Xerxes found only 500 resisting Greeks to make prisoners of war. Onward the Persian host, strong in the thousands, thundered across Attica, cutting a trail of destruction across the rugged countryside and sending out detachments to ravage other parts of Greece. The towns that submitted to Persian rule were spared, but those that fought back, or whose people had fled, were pillaged and burned. 
In due time, Xerxes and his army reached the city, just four months after they had crossed the Straits of the Hellespont from Asia into Europe. The Athens they found was an empty shell, silent but for the handful of defenders who sheltered behind their wooden wall atop the Acropolis. The invaders wasted no time in securing the city and taking revenge for their defeat at Athenian hands some ten years ago. They climbed the Acropolis and met the defense of the stalwart citizens who were dug in there. The makeshift wooden wall kept the Persians at bay, but not for long. Soon a band of attackers crept up a steep and unguarded part of the wall and breached the sanctuary. All of the Acropolis's defenders were killed, and the sky was swirling with embers as the ancient temples crumbled in billowing flames. While Athens was burning, the assembled Greek fleet was stationed just a few miles away in the narrow strait between the island of Salamis and the coast of Attica. The whole force comprised some 370 ships in all, 200 from Athens and the rest from various remaining city-states who still resolved to fight the empire. The enormous enemy fleet brought by Xerxes, despite its losses and storms at sea, far outnumbered that of Greece, and it came sweeping down the Attic coast, assured of victory, while the vast army marched to the south over land. And now, as the critical moment drew nearer by the hour, two councils of war were held, one by the Persian leaders and one by the Greeks. Xerxes' fleet, still a thousand ships strong, stood in the Bay of Phalerum, a few miles from Athens, and here the great king came to survey his ships of war, proud with victory over the smoldering city and planning his next move. Here, before his royal throne, were seated the Phoenician kings of Tyre and Sidon and the rulers of the countless other nations who filled his army. One by one, the king put the question to them, asking what should be done to seal the victory. Let us fight, was the common reply. Fight now, with no delay. But only one voice among these advisers gave a different answer. Artemisia, the battle-hardened queen of Halicarnassus in Asia Minor, counseled Xerxes to instead march to the Isthmus of Corinth, if he did this, all the ships of the Peloponnesians would fly to defend their own homes, and the Greek fleet would lose any hope of strength and unity. Xerxes sat back and listened to her calmly, but in the end declined to take her advice. The voices of the other leaders and his own stirred confidence won out, and orders were given for the fleet to make its attack on the Greeks the very next day. The almost unanimous decision of the Persian council was very different from what transpired among the restless alliance of the Greeks. Their ships had gathered at Salamis to help the escape of the Athenians, and now, with the evacuation finished, it was time to decide when and where to meet the Persian fleet. Only the Athenians, under Themistocles' leadership, 
favored remaining where they were, in the Bay of Salamis. The Allies, however, were uneasy with this, recognizing that if they were attacked and overwhelmed here, there would be no way out of the bay. Most of their leaders wanted to sail to the Isthmus of Corinth, to aid the land army assembled by the states of the Peloponnese, and still more courses of action were being hotly debated. While they argued, news came that Athens and the Acropolis had been seized and were in flames. A wave of alarm spread through the Greek council, and at once some of the captains rushed away to set sail in flight. Those who remained committed to striking a blow against the Persians voted to depart for the Isthmus, but they wouldn't set out until the morning of the next day. The Athenian Themistocles had done his best to prevent this move, since he knew, as well as Queen Artemisia, that it would only spell their doom with their forces divided. Many of the women and children of Athens were on the island of Salamis, and if the fleet sailed away, they would be displaced again. Although the council had dissolved, Themistocles refused to give up and went at once to the ship of Eurybiades, the Spartan commander chosen as the admiral of their whole allied fleet, and made his case to him alone with such fervor and assurance that Eurybiades was partly convinced. The admiral agreed to call the council together again. Themistocles had one more chance, and he argued his views with all his might. A Corinthian named Adamantus grew furious in the meeting and spat that a man without a city had no right to make decisions for the rest of them. Themistocles shot back that even without a city, with just his 200 ships, he could make a city far better than the likes of Corinth. Then he turned to Eurybiades. If you stay and fight bravely here, we can win he insisted. But if you refuse, you'll lose all of Greece. If you won't stand your ground, we Athenians will sail on with our ships and our families, and you'll regret the day you lost an ally like us. When everyone at the council fell silent, it was clear that the threat of a Greek resistance without the warships of Athens had struck home. The Spartan admiral Eurybiades was so convinced that he skipped the formalities of asking for a vote. He gave his solemn word that they would stay and fight, and bade the other leaders to make ready for battle. So it happened that when the new dawn arrived, the allied Greek fleet stood its ground and drew up in formation in the Bay of Salamis to await the Persian armada. Despite this decision, nevertheless there were some leaders of the Peloponnesian states who still rejected the plan, going so far as to hold a secret meeting and preparing to quietly sail away from the bay. Themistocles caught wind of this, and to prevent the fracturing of the fleet once again, he resorted to a daring trick. He drafted and sent a secret message across enemy lines to Xerxes, the Persian king himself. With this, Themistocles cunningly represented himself 
as a secret ally of the Persian king and warned that the Greek fleet was about to escape. If Xerxes wanted to capture them, he must blockade both ends of the strait immediately to make their flight impossible. And when Xerxes received this message, he suspected nothing and wasted no time in taking the advice of the supposed traitor of the Greeks. When the sun rose on the next day over the Bay of Salamis, the dissatisfied Peloponnesians were about to make sail as they had agreed. But unbeknownst to them, Themistocles' ruse had already set events in motion. A startling message came to the fleet as Aristides, a noble Athenian who had been exiled from the city but now returned, joined them at Salamis and revealed to them what he had seen. That battle was the only path left, that the Persians had trapped them like birds in a cage, and there were no choices but to fight or surrender. At first, Aristides' disturbing report wasn't believed, but it was confirmed quickly enough as countless Persian ships soon appeared at both ends of the strait to the terror of all the Greeks, all except Themistocles. Now he knew that the war would be decided according to his design and the oracle's prophecy. The wooden walls of their ships would save Athens, facing down the enemy in the shadow of divine Salamis. The assembled Greek allies, with no room left for quarreling, spent the morning preparing for an epic battle at sea. The vast army of Persia was drawn up on the edge of the narrow strait as spectators to watch the clash of over a thousand ships crowding the bay. The Greek fleet was outnumbered by a force double or triple its size. Xerxes himself sat on a high throne erected at a point that closely overlooked the water, believing that his presence would rouse the sailors' courage. By his side stood scribes, ready to write down the course of what was sure to be a Persian victory. On the other side of the bay, the people of Athens and Attica looked on with hope and fear at the scene of the gathering warships. The Greek defenders were fired by the harsh alternatives of victory on the one hand, death or subjugation on the other. This was a reality that leveled the field amid their huge disadvantage in numbers. While the Persians were fighting for glory and conquest, the Greeks sailed for the freedom of their land, all the more for the refugee Athenians, whose city had already been lost, its holy Acropolis set ablaze. Caught like lions in a snare, they raced into combat with the knowledge that they must fight or die. The battle that followed that day was furious, the ships swerving and ramming and swirling in such a chaotic mass that it became impossible for the onlookers to follow what was happening. Soon the waters of the Bay of Salamis ran red with blood. Broken oars, corpses, and shattered hulls choked the strait. Hundreds were hurled into the waters, many to drown in their gear. But from the start, the advantage lay with the Greeks, whose more maneuverable vessels, their well-crafted triremes, 
outpaced the Persian ships that trapped themselves in the narrow waters. The size of their fleet was enormous, but their numbers were useless in the strait. Realizing their danger, the Persian ships rushed in escape to find clear waters. Losing all semblance of formation, soon the fleet of Xerxes became a disordered mass. In panic, the Persians fled, and the Greeks chased them down in hot pursuit. One trireme from the island of Naxos captured five Persian ships on its own. One of Xerxes' own brothers was slain by an Athenian spear, one among many distinguished Persians who shared that fate. Before the day was done, the battle on the Persian side had become a frantic effort to escape. Watching all this unfolding from his high throne, the great King Xerxes had felt his early confidence give way to wrath and fear. He was outraged at the panicked escape of his ships in the bay, but alone among his fleeing troops, he spied one flagship that still fought on, as it turned, rammed, and sank another vessel, a Greek one, he presumed, that crossed its path. This was the ship of Queen Artemisia, his ally who had told him before, wisely, as it turned out, not to chase the Greek fleet too recklessly. Now, as he saw it, Artemisia was the only one of his commanders who had kept her valor. In fury, the king's composure broke, and he cried out, So my men have become women, and my women are men. But his outburst was premature, since the ship Artemisia had destroyed in the chaos was in fact one of his own. The total rout of his fleet on that day at Salamis would go on to consume the great king's mind. Even though his army still vastly outnumbered that of the Greeks, and despite its heavy losses, his fleet was still stronger, his next moves set the stage for his ultimate defeat. Dreading that the Greeks would destroy the bridge he had built over the Hellespont that linked Europe and Asia, and close off his withdrawal back to the east, he commanded his fleet to hasten there and guard it, and he put his army in swift retreat for safer shores. After an ill-planned march to the Hellespont that saw starvation and disease devastate his forces, they found the bridge gone, washed away by a storm. At the end of it all, Xerxes entered his capital of Sardis with a broken army, eight months after he had left it with the proud expectation of victorious conquest. The Greek fleet had struck a decisive blow against Persia at Salamis in a brilliant upset that would resound through the ages. Like the Battle of Marathon that had driven away the first Persian invasion a decade before, the Battle of Salamis would achieve a mythical status for the Greeks and become a new source of their unity and pride. For the Athenians most of all on that day, a rapturous wave of relief swept over the refugees whose entire nation had been saved in its darkest hour. It would still be several long months before the Athenians could settle comfortably and permanently back in their home city, 
and there was one more final victory to be won to crush the last remnants of the Persian army on land. The victory at Salamis sowed the seeds for the next half-century of Athens's preeminent stature among Greek cities, a period of unrivaled wealth and influence, all made possible by its power over the seas. And the story of Salamis's hero, the cunning, confident Themistocles, was to take many more unexpected twists and turns before its end. But the glory of this battle would endure, and the Athenians would never forget their role in the salvation of Greece, a victory promised by the gods, led by the daring Themistocles, and won by the wooden walls of Athens. <laughs>